do. All right, we want to pray for Pepe. And when they diluted the eyes, somehow they stay, they stood, stood stuck. They stayed dilated. Diluted. Hey, you just sit there and be quiet. Like you're not old enough to be correcting me. Yeah, dilated. Yeah, thank you. You're old enough. All right, come on. Where's Don? We're gonna so in James chapter five it says, if anyone are cheerful, sing praises. And if any of you are sick, call forth the elders of the church to anoint them with oil. And if they've committed sins, I'll forgive their sins. I mean, there is power for a deliberate expectation for God to heal us through his church and through his leaders. And so we pray for healing a lot. Uh, but this morning, I mean, this thing has been really lingering, and it's so we really need to get on this thing uh, because it's causing to lose sight in an eye. And, uh, and it's rapid, in a sense, relatively speaking. So we're going to anoint him this morning. And then we're going to uh, follow the, the biblical admonition in James 5, uh, and we're going to pray over him. So would you pray with us as we pray? So Lord Jesus, we love you, and we anoint your servant, Pepe, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, Lord Jesus, we pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and the promise that anything that would impede your healing grace, you'll remove as we come in faith to you in these situations, and we do, and we come, we say, Lord, particularly, Lord, if this is something that happened uh, just as we would stop praying as the trip would seem to be over. In the past, we've seen these kind of things, and so we pray, Lord, right now, in Jesus' name, we rebuke every demonic assignment, every evil thing, Lord, all sickness we stand against in the wonderful and precious name of Jesus. And Lord, we're so grateful because you say the prayer of faith will raise them up, that you'll heal them. And so, Lord, we're not asking a maybe. We're coming in your name according to you. We're saying, heal your servant, Pepe, Lord. And, Lord, we're not impressed with ourselves, but we're really impressed with you, Lord. And we know how much you love Pepe, so we say healing and blessing and peace, Lord, your anointing. And, Lord, if there are other things, Lord, that his sleep and other things that he's had through the years, we pray that as you touch his eye and eyes, Lord, that you'd also heal other things that have been nagging and been problems through the years. We pray it. In the mighty and wonderful name, the name of Jesus, amen. God bless you. Yes. All right, this morning, uh, let's remember that we're in the third Sunday in Advent. Let's do a little quiz. There's two choices. You ready? A or B. Advent is about Christmas, A, or Advent is about the second coming. A or B? B. It is not about Christmas, but the second coming. So we're remembering that Jesus Christ is coming back to judge the living and the dead. Uh, and so we're preparing and making our lives holy and the one way we can do that is to choose to put off things and to choose to receive things. We don't have the power. I can choose to change and to be a better person. I can do no less than choose, but it takes more than my choice. It takes the power of God. But God has chosen in the scriptures to reveal that the way the kingdom works is as we choose in faith God's grace and his help and his forgiveness, he will come and assist us. So it takes no less than our very best and our choice, 
but it takes far more, his grace and his power. But he is willing to help us uh, as we seek him and ask and as we repent. He is faithful to, uh, to cleanse us, to forgive us these things. It's, it's an amazing thing. So Advent's all about sanctification. And so we see and, uh, you know, put off the, we, we do the Advent collect all the way through that we should put off uh, the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light. So it's, we need to become holy people. And that's a process. And again, the process is and takes the choice. Now, what other things has God given us to help us to know what to put off and to how, what to put on in terms of putting off the bad and putting on the good? Well, the second Sunday last week, it was Bible Sunday. So we remembered the critical importance of knowing God's word. Absolutely essential uh, if we're going to make any movement into grace. Number three, and this Sunday, the third Sunday, is all about God's ministers, that he has anointed people. Most of us, our gifts are to go out into the world and to serve the world. And about 5% or less of the people are called to pastor and to help the church. So that we come together, we worship, we align our hearts and minds to God in worship and in teaching and praise and prayers. And then we go out and we become the hands and the feet of Jesus as we lead in all the different places God sends us. But a very few people, not the most important people, but priests and deacons, and they're there to help us to recalibrate and to stay focused in terms of what God is about in his word so that we can go out and be a blessing in this world. Uh, we wouldn't think, you know, we don't think, uh, I mean, I have a lot of respect for the police, but, but we don't think that the policeman is the most important person in the city. Part of what the bishops and priests and deacons do is to help make sure that the church functions well, that we don't have false teaching. And I mean, there's some, there's some real roles there, but it's not because we're so important or any better than anybody else. It's just, that's the particular designation. That's the third Sunday. Next Sunday, we focus on God has given us his spirit and he meets us in his sacraments and by his spirit and the gifts. That's my favorite. One of my very favorites for the year is the fourth Sunday in Advent. But for this morning... The gospel came out of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. How should a person consider us? And I've preached on that many years. And it's so cool because it's so easy because he says, you got to be like, the, you know, anyway, I'm not going to preach that sermon. At the end, I will come back to it. Sorry, Don's looking at his clock. He's like, ah, okay. All right, so this morning, I want to give you a quick understanding of what the context is to the reading of 1 Corinthians 4. So if you notice up there, I've taken a few verses from chapters 1, 2, and 3, and we're just going to walk through them relatively quickly. But this is really important because it helps define, part of what leadership is, leadership defines reality. And so it's really important as a leader to say, this is how we operate. And so Paul was doing this very thing in the Corinthian church. Now, I, Susan, I had the uh, blessing to spend, I don't know, three or four days or maybe five, I don't know, in Corinth a couple years ago, and it was so fascinating to imagine this was the place that we had read about all of our lives in the Bible, and to be there, uh, and to see that place, and I've got a lot of memories of, of that time. But I want to talk about sectarians. The problem in the Corinthian church, well, there's a lot of problems. One, the Corinthian church was the Las Vegas, the New York, and the Hong Kong of the ancient world altogether. If you wanted to do something naughty and bad, that's the place that you would go. Now, I would go into some of those things, but my kids make fun of me when I tell them all the different things. They're somewhere out here. If I get into all the different things you could do in Corinth, that basically, anything you wanted to do, you could do it in Corinth. Uh, it was uh, a very uh, evil place. Now, the church was highly educated. A lot of them had come out of, they had been priests and priests and the, uh, priestesses in the temple worship, but they were highly educated in rhetoric. 
There are still degrees. I have a friend who did his first PhD in linguistics, and his second PhD he did at Purdue in rhetoric uh, many years ago. And he was my Greek professor in seminary, one of the smartest guys I've ever been around. Uh, but there are people uh, who, who know all about and have studied their whole lives, have studied rhetoric, and, and it's a system of argumenting and presenting your information and persuading other people. I don't find much of it is appealing to us today, uh, although there's some ways that we can benefit from it, but, but it's not something that today you just say, oh, wow, that's so convincing. Uh, it's, it was for a particular audience, a particular way of thinking in the Greeks, and etc. Paul writes the book, of course, in the style, uh, but he is getting on it because they're also smart, but they're also people who thought very highly of themselves. And, and, and I don't know, and I hate to say it, one of the ways that we get revealed pride in us is when we have a lot of opinions. I have a lot of opinions. That's not a good sign. I got a lot of opinions. Having real big opinions is a sign of a lot of pride. All right? Um, not a good thing. So in the Corinthian church, they were very proud people. They had a lot of opinions. And so they argued and they were sectarian. And a sectarian, uh, a sect or a group of sectarian people are people who hold on to a part at the exclusion of other parts. So that's why you have Calvinists who will hang on to predestination. And if you're not for predestination, they'll write you off everything else you do at Christianity if you don't agree with their view of predestination and the way that they think predestination fits with every other doctrine in the Bible. And so that's sectarian, meaning we're finding ways to divide people instead of bringing people together through the blood of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Uh, it's okay to disagree. It's not that predestination doesn't matter, but, but when predestination becomes the ruling doctrine that tells people they're okay or not okay, some churches do it over hymn books. When I first came here 23 and a half or 40, 24 years ago, uh, Marilyn, you're just laughing because she knows, uh, they were in love with a 1940 Episcopal hymnal, and you would think that it came down from the angels. And if, if, if you didn't use the 1940 hymnal, you were a person of suspicion and mistrust, you know, because we know that the 1940 hymnal of the Episcopal Church was the greatest hymnal ever, and anyone who would want to add anything else to that, something could be really wrong with that person. And, and so that they were sectarian over that. In our church, we, we had been sectarian over the 1928 Book of Common Prayer. I love the 1928 Book of Common Prayer. I, I haven't found any reason to change, but it's a great prayer book, but there's nothing better than we're not like oh we're, we're better than everybody else at this point after 23 years i'm just too old to change that's not the greatest reason if, the, if it becomes compelling one day I'll, i will change but the 28 perfect has some wonderful things about it but but when i first came to this church and i had been raised baptist and i didn't understand church politics they were willing to throw people out of the church if they didn't believe the 1920 not not they didn't believe in the gospel or not believe in the new testament or the old testament but if you didn't really believe sincerely that the 1928 book account was the best and everything else was no good, you could never have been happy. They would have not welcomed you. They would have made you feel unwelcome, and you would have never come to this church. All right? That's sectarian. Some people, you know, we were sectarian. I was raised in a very strict Baptist. Uh, and, and so if you drank, smoked, danced, used chewing tobacco, if you bet $2 at the races, oh my gosh. I mean, you, would, you might as well be selling heroin uh, in Times Square. I mean, there, that, that, there was no proportion of anything. Uh, and so we, they were very... When the, when the church is not living in the spirit, it finds rules to determine who is on the in-group and who is on the out-group. 
So for some, it's dancing. For some, it's smoking. For some, it's gambling. It's so funny. You go to Kentucky. I got family in Kentucky. And all the Baptists in Kentucky go to Keeneland, the racetrack, after church. They go to, I mean, they're from Kentucky, so they don't think anything of all these horses. So, so they'll go to the races after church. And my sister said, it was the craziest thing. She said, the first time I went to the horse track after church on a Sunday afternoon, she said, just my, it was only two bucks or something, but it was just mind-blowing to think because we had been raised. I mean, that was the real evil people. You know, that's how you can tell a bad person. They're betting two dollars on the ponies. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's all these things. So churches that are not living and flowing in the power, of the, they, they got to find all kinds of other rules. Some of these things maybe aren't the greatest things, but they're not the essential message of the Bible or of Jesus. And that has to be the thing uh, that unifies us or divides us, the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ and the Bible. So in this church in Corinthian, they were all very proud, big thing, very immature Christians, but they were very gifted and they were very intellectual. Not unlike the kind of people we get in Gainesville, by the way. And uh, so what you had is you had people that said, I like Paul, and Paul's really great, and, and Apollos, I don't like him. He focuses too much on the Old Testament, and, and Peter, you know, he's a man's man. Some people like that. Oh, he's a man's man. We like Peter, uh, but he's not as sophisticated. He's not as nuanced, and he doesn't know theology as well as Paul. So they all had these different things, and so some people bragged and said, well, we're from the Jesus group, and other people said, we're from the Paul group, and, and who baptized you, and, and this and that, and so there are all these different things. Uh, that went on, and there was all these sectarian, these splinter groups and divisions that were forming all about the personality rather than the message. So they preferred a certain presentation style and a certain personality, even in a small church like ours. Do you know what the college kids are telling me? Larry's better. We like to hear Larry. <laughs> he's easy on the eyes, that Pastor Larry. Don, he's funny. He's the cool priest. That's what I hear. Carter, he's the young one. He's going to be better than all of you guys. <laughs> and, and they tell me, Ron, you need to lose weight. That's what they say about me. <laughs> so you can get this kind of stuff happening everywhere, even in our church, in our little slice of heaven here. So anyway, but it was dividing the church and destroying the church. And so Paul is dealing with this division, this party spirit. And look what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I mean chapter 1, verse 10 to 13. Now I plead with you, it's begging you, I beg with you, brethren, uh, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you will all speak the same thing, and there be no divisions among you, and that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. How is it possible, with all of our opinions and thoughts, that we could be of the same mind in the same judgment? The only way it's possible, if we exalt the mind of Jesus to be the highest place, and we don't make anything else that big of a deal. Because we're going to disagree. We're going to like different, you know, some are going to say, I love the hymns, I love the, we, okay. But if we'll exalt Jesus and keep the main thing the main thing, if then we can have the same mind and the same heart. Uh, we can be unified together if we, only, though, if we keep the main thing the main thing. Otherwise, we're going to disagree. We're going to disagree about the paint colors. We're going to disagree. There will always be things that can be a big deal if we let it. So the rule of a real biblical church and a, a godly church, whether it's Anglican or Lutheran or Baptist, is we must have the same heart and the same mind and the same understanding. That's only if we limit ourselves to exalting Jesus to the proper place. When Jesus isn't exalted, everything else becomes a big deal. Remember that. When churches are going through all kind of nonsense, okay, you'll know 
somewhere along the line, we stopped exalting Jesus in the right place. And when we get to a place where we're divided about something, you know, the last election, you know, we got people who felt so strongly about this and so strongly about this. And what I told you back then, and I continue, if Jesus is lifted high enough, we can get through it. If Jesus isn't lifted high enough, we're going to be offended at everybody. All right? And that's important. So it's important when we come to church that the main thing is the main thing. Some of the people in this church are very suspicious of Trump. Some of the people, they think he's the best thing in the world. But in the church, we don't go there. Not because it's not important, but because we have to stay unified of the same heart and mind. How do you stay unified of the same heart and mind when you've got Republicans and Democrats and good people to love? Well, you only can do it if we make sure that here, Jesus is exalted. And have your beliefs. I got mine. You come on my porch and you bring me a couple cookies, I'll tell you. It'll cost you a snack, but other than that. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, verse 11, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions. By the way, these divisions are schisms. The idea in the Greek is to take a valuable fabric and to rip it so that it cannot be put back together. That's what a schism is. It's when you tear a garment I mean, there's ways that you could rip something and put it back together neatly. No, this is the idea is, is to do it with such violence that you desecrate it in the sense that it can never look right again. That's the idea of what it means to be divisive. Uh, that's why when you see uh, the, 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 the uh, sins in, in Galatians 5, the, the sins that lead to death are separation from God. Well, there's like witchcraft and murder and adultery and dissensions. People who rip the body of Christ apart for some whatever it is motive. Often something to do. I mean, the research is that people who get involved in church conflict, most of us in those con- are from families of alcoholics. Did you know that? That those of us who have not dealt with our, the ch- research on church conflict is that most of the people who divide churches is, is they're replaying stuff that wasn't healed from growing up as an adult child now of an alcoholic family. Not, not the alcoholics themselves necessarily, but people who grew up in alcoholic families. The dysfunction that goes on and the instincts that get messed up, that's part of what allows people. So they'll say, in all the research, this is the kind of people, and they're not necessarily trying to be bad, but they're destroying what Jesus loves. And it's a really big deal. So I say this, that each of you says, they're contentious, they're, they're divisive people, because they say what? I'm a Paul. Father Larry is the best. I'm of Apollos. Father Don's the cool one. Right? All these different ones. Right? I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas or Peter. I'm of Christ. Paul says, is Christ divided? No. Was, Christ cruci- was Paul crucified for you? No. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. Then he goes on and he says, the medium is the message. Meaning, the life of Jesus tells us how we are to live and to be. So he says, And I, brother, when I came to you, I did not come in excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. He's like, I was trained in rhetoric. I went to Harvard. Paul had all the training in the world. He said, but I knew that if I came that way, our pride would be incited and we would just be arguing about theology or this or that. Not that it's not important, but we'll never be able to unite it in the way that we need to be united if we focus on those things. So he says, when I came, I kept it simple. For I determined not to know anything. 
He had been trained in the law, in the tradition. He knew all of it. But I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Churches that get deep and go deep together understand the importance of focusing on Jesus Christ and him crucified. We love theology. We have a lot of trained theologians in our church. We have people who are very bright. It's nothing, it's not, I'm not anti-theology. I love it. But knowledge has a tendency to puff up, as Paul says, and get us off the track if we're not focusing on the exaltation of Jesus properly. I was with you in weakness. He said, I didn't come in you boasting and pride. I came in you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. Why? Did, was he intimidated by the Corinthians and their smarts? No. He was intimidated by the fact that Jesus Christ died for them, and he wanted to make sure that he did everything as best he possibly could to win them to the gospel that they would grow and be faithful Christians. So I came in fear and trembling because, I mean, and that's the thing in, the, in our church. When people send someone to a 1928 Book of Common Prayer Anglican church, Jesus sent them. That's what I always figured. I'm always like, Jesus sent you. And if Jesus sent you, we want to do our best to treat you well. And I'm honest, I'm serious about that. I, I remember the day there's 23 people here on a big Sunday. Not in this building. We didn't have this building back then. But when people started coming, I'm like, oh, Jesus, you're sending them. How would they find us? And if you sent them, boy, we want to treat them well. And my speech and my preaching were not with pers persuasive words. Rhetoric is what you, you know. Or human, of human wisdom. But in demonstration, the spirit and of power. He said, that's how we cut through the nonsense. What was the criteria that Paul said you can tell the legitimate from the illegitimate? The power of God. That when we pray... The Holy Spirit shows up. That's what we want. I would love to tell you, every time I pray, everyone gets healed. It's not true. Keeps us humble. Because we want to be like Paul to say, I came not in persuasive, but in the power of God. And whenever I pray, the Holy Spirit comes. I can't say that, but that's absolutely what I want and where we're aiming for as a church. That our focus and our love and our commitment in yieldness to the Holy Spirit would be that the power of the Holy Spirit would be here dwelling richly. That's the criteria, not an extensive doctrinal statement of Reformed theology versus Arminians or this or that. But he's saying, you'll know because I came in simplicity. I knew all that stuff, but I came in simplicity and the power of the Holy Spirit. That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, he goes on to explain in the next part of the second chapter that he, he knew all about wisdom, et cetera. So I gave you some of that. On, well, you don't have the handout, but at 8 o'clock, they had the handout. But now let's go to the last part of chapter 3. He gives them three things. He gives them, he talks about the metaphor of watering, uh, of working in the, uh, with plants and things, or crops, and then a great warning. And this is a powerful warning for us. Now, I'm not aware of any problems this morning. That's why it's so good to define reality on the third Sunday in Advent. Some of you are visiting. You'll be able to go back into conflicts and things that will come in the future. Many of the young people one day be leaders in churches, and you'll say, ah, I know how the Bible says to deal with these things because I learned about 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 2, 1, and the four chapters. These are crucial things about dealing with conflict. So he says in 1 Corinthians 3, starting with verse 5, he said, who then is Paul? Because he's talking, right? And who is Apollos? 
but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything. Paul's talking about himself. Nor he who waters, talking about Apollos. But God gives the increase. I mean, we're so grateful for faithful pastors and people. But if it weren't for the power of God, everything they did wouldn't work. So we need faithfulness, but we need the power of God. So he's saying none of us should be getting a big head about this thing. Whatever anointing, whatever gifts, God gave it to us. And we're working cooperatively. Nobody has all the gifts. We've got to have a team. And we've got to have a family. We would say today team, but, but they understood the family representing that kind of a team. So, uh, now he who plants and he who waters are one. We're on the same team. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. God's paying attention. But it's not, and no one's interest for us to be thinking some's better or worse uh, on the team. We're all together. Nine, then he gets into workers in the field. For we are God's fellow workers. I'm sorry, you're talking about master builder, building a house. So you are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. You can't build a good house without a good foundation. But a foundation is not all of the house. We need people to teach us doctrine and Hebrew and Greek or history or whatever. We need all these different things. But the foundation is the essential element. And Paul's ministry was to put in the foundation. But he wasn't taken away from all the other people who could build the house into something beautiful and holy and good. <coughs> According to the grace that God was given me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Let's make sure we're not building on hobby horses of theology or the end times or whatever or this, that. Let's make sure it's the whole counsel of God. Let's make sure that, that the simplicity of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, that the fruit of the Spirit, that these are the things that we focus upon. And that's the fruit that we're seeing built uh, in the church. Uh, 11, for no, one found, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day of Jesus' return, that's the day, that's why it's capital D in the translation, but it's referring to the second coming. For the day will declare it because it will reveal revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work and sort and what sort it is. There's good things that are going to, in that day of judgment, it's going to burn. And, and some good things are going to look more beautiful than ever. And some not so good things are going to be burned up and be done away with. That's what we're really, he's, Paul says, we're not really qualified. It will take the fire of God to make clear. There's people we think aren't that great, and God's going to say, oh, they were. And people, because we, we're not qualified to make a judgment. We can only see on the outside. We can only see superficially. We have some idea, but we don't know like God's going to know, and like God knows now. If anyone, verse 14, work which he has built on endures, you see how he's like, he's, it almost sounds like it's possible that we could do all this and it not endure. What a horrible thought. But if anyone's work which, ha, which he has built on endures, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. There'll be accountability. But he himself will be saved, yet so through fire. Doesn't sound very pleasant. Now, here's the warning. And I want you to... Again, this is a university town. And a lot of us, if 10 years now, 15 years now, we may not be here. 
But listen carefully to the warning. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Saying you're the church, and don't you know? This is God's house. It's God's people. Not just St. Andrews, but First Baptist or West Side or whatever church you want to say. The ones that are preaching the gospel, they're, they're gods. We're the temple as Christian people, and we're, we're here in one place. If anyone destroys or defiles the temple of God, if people work against the unity of the church, God will destroy him or her. Do you realize how serious that is? Listen, there are churches that have not split when they should. When should you split in a church? When the gross immorality in the leadership, uh, moving away from the central, the fundamentals of the faith, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, putting a, teach, you know, teaching some kind of salvation other than salvation by grace through faith. I mean, there are some things, and it's amazing how many churches that should have split didn't split in the last 50 years. But how many churches have split? Just since I was a kid, in my own life, I've seen over people, personalities, and the presentation of the way someone preached or not, even though they were faithful and godly men by everyone's account. Can you imagine that Paul, right in the Bible, it says, don't you know when you destroy and you stir up trouble and you get people on your side and you want people, you're going around and God... Now, I don't know that anything that's happening. I'm praise the Lord. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's happening now, but, but you got to know. Have nothing to do with that kind of stuff. Have nothing to do with it. It will never go well for you if you get mixed up in that kind of stuff. Do you know that in the first 12 years, we have four church splits? We were a very small church through each of those. I know, I know everybody almost very well. In fact, that most of the people who left, they were afraid that the church was growing and they were not going to be in the inner circle. As if we had some kind of secret cocktail parties that they were missing. <laughs> like, I'm too tired. I got no money. We are doing it. There's no inner circle. I mean, there was only one inner circle. <laughs> and they didn't want that inner circle, I'm sure. Do you know that when we run into the ones who talk to us, they'll say, you know, the best years of my life were back at St. Andrews. I mean, we're not in a great church. We're not try- I'm not trying to, I'm just saying, there was a time in their life when this church, we were loving each other before this thing happened, that they got cut. And they basically, it's never been the same. It's not a good, and, 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 and I would do almost everything better than I did. I'm not trying to say I vindicate myself. I'm saying, but we were trying to do the right things. And we got into groups of people who, because of their fears, childhood things they hadn't sorted through, that they were willing to destroy the church to get their way. Um, heartbreaking. And, and, and I don't know all of them where they're all at, but I know a bunch of them, and they've never thrived. They will say with their own mouth what I told you. The best years of life were back in the day. And again, you understand, I'm not saying it's so great, but for what it was, they knew God's presence and stuff, and, and, and it's not where they've ended up. I'm not saying they're not Christians, by the way, but they, 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 they haven't thrived in the Lord 
since that time. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, tearing it up, party spell it, God will destroy him. You will find God's word will be vindicated on this. That's why, you know, hey, don't get into it. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. All right? Um, really crucial stuff. Now, let me just give you one definition here about sectarianism on this very thing. It's up there. It's one of the screens. It's going to come in a second. Next one, one more screen. There. Deliberately causing schisms in the body of Christ is a demonic sin. Again, I'm not, there's nothing going on that I'm aware of, so I'm just, but this is why we got to tell you today. So much so that divisive people are not to be tolerated in the church. In Matthew 18, Christ outlined a series of four steps churches should go through in calling sinner, sinning brothers to repentance. I mean, if someone's having an affair or doing, uh, cheating people in business, I mean, it's a four-step process, and it can take a month or two. Could take a little longer in some cases. But with divisive people, the Bible says you have to accelerate the process. You can't wait. My dad told me as a little boy, he said, do you know why you cut off a hand when you, know, when you got gangrene or arm? He said, the only reason you cut off the hand or the arm is because if you don't do that, you'll lose the whole body. Christ outlined a series of four steps churches should go through in calling a sinning brother to repentance. But when someone is schismatic, willing to tear up the body, Paul says that discipline process may be accelerated. He wrote in Titus 3, 10 to 11, reject a factious, difficult, divisive, troublemaker. Man, after a first and second warning, reject them, put them out of the church. Not saying they're not Christian, but you can't stay here and cause problems. Knowing that such a man is perverted. Perversion means twisted of the good. Doesn't mean there's not good in there, but the good is being twisted and causing all kinds of grief and problems in the church. Two warnings, Paul says. That's what God's word says. Do you know that I have seen it where people in a church have complained about a person? The whole church have complained, this divisive person. When the pastor finally, two years later, finally does something and says, okay, you can't come back, you're difficult, the whole church will turn on the pastor for being a bully. The very people who complain and said, you got to do something. When the pastor actually does something, they'll turn against the pastor. This is really important. This is what God's word says. The truth is, in most cases, pastors have not, they've been afraid of the people and have not properly dealt with the difficult people. If you don't deal with the difficult people, you'll ruin the whole church. Reject a factious, difficult, contentious man after a first and a second warning. Reject them, put them out, knowing that such a man is perverted, twisted the good, and is sinning, being self-condemned, because he's harming the body. He's harming the body. She's harming the body. Now, the reading for today, how do you consider, uh, what do you think of a priest and bishop and these people? Hey, they're just like you, except for it's worse. They're like the lowest slave, he says. Consider them as slaves. The ones that are in the boat, like in Ben-Hur, they're, they're chained to the oar. And when the drum beats and Jesus says, do this, that's all they get to do. They don't have a lot of freedom. They've got to stay with some pretty strict standards and places because that's what God says. So don't be impressed with Paul or Cephas or this one or that one or this anointing. Hey, whatever gift and grace they have, God gave it to them. 
We want to respect them for just being faithful in it. And then number two, he says, remember, they're like the galley slaves. But number two, remember, they're like the household managers. God has entrusted them with holy things. Give the priests and bishops and deacons the respect of the fact that God has given them the care of your soul. Now, let me tell you a secret as I close. I have learned, rightly or wrongly, that you get one telling a person no one time normally will end a relationship. Did you know that? If a pastor says to somebody, no, that's not a good idea. No matter how biblical, no matter how much support it, when you tell a person no, even if they know you're right, they will leave the church almost always. hate to say that, but in my experience at least. We try to be really careful. The way that you're supposed to train dogs is not beat them when they're bad, but just keep petting them when they do good. So our style at St. Andrews is ignore the bad if at all possible and praise the good and let people have enough grace and stuff to grow and grow up. That's our strategy. We don't give you a bunch of rules. We're not trying to give you a hard time. We're here to say, hey, you're here. You, you love Jesus. You want to be here. Let's help you to grow. But I pretty much know I've got one card in your life. One day when someone's going to be having an affair or something terrible is going on, and I'm going to have to say, hey, don't do that. I'm playing for one day. I've got one no for most people, with most people. So I have to be very careful. That's why we're not here trying to give you a hard time. But when Father Don or Father Larry or Father Carter or I, when we use that card to say, hey, this ain't good. Listen, because you've got to know if you've been any length of time. We're not playing that card. Years and years and years will pass. You'll say, yeah, I never had him come to me and say to me, know about something. Because if it's not a real no, we just let it go. Unless it's harming the body. I mean, there's a couple little exceptions, but, but we don't get much of that. But dear Lord, if we come and have to tell you X or whatever because of the scripture, Think long and hard, because our heart and ambition is to help you to grow. We're not going to be doing it lightly. We're not micromanaging. I've wept with some people with affairs through the years, different things, and had to say that no. In almost every case, there was repentance and transformation, and I'm so grateful but I lost a few. I did the best I could. I probably could do it better now, but I, I did the best I knew how. With all the humility in the world. Remember, pastors aren't perfect. They're just like the galley slaves. Not, not have to be particularly bright or anything, but called by God and given the mysteries. As best you can, open up your hearts to the people who are faithful in doing that. Uh, imperfectly, but faithfully. Keep your hearts open. There may be rough days ahead. And on those days, we want to be there to, to make things better and to protect you from the things that might be coming. Does that make sense, as crazy as it sounds? I hope so. I hope so. I've had people tell me things as a young man, and I didn't listen. <laughs> I mean, I would just, that was it. If you told me something, I wasn't wise enough to benefit Lord Jesus, we love you. Lord, it's so hard 
with pastors and, and, and bishops and deacons and leaders because, uh, Lord, we got so much wounds as children. So many authority issues where we've been let down in some way, uh, real or perceived, and, and, and so, Lord, it's so hard. And yet, Lord, part of what you've entrusted to the ministers of the gospel is to, to preach the good and also direct us and to help us on those rough days too. I pray, Lord, that there will be so much love on all these good days that if a bad day comes, uh, that the, the heart and the love would be strong enough to maintain relationships uh, through thick and the thin. So, Lord, bless us and strengthen us, Lord. Keep us exalting Jesus, people of one heart and one mind, one understanding, which requires us to limit so much stuff. Lord, we ask for the grace to exalt you, uh, to serve you faithfully. And, Lord, I thank you for a family that, that loves me and treats me so well. Uh, Lord, help me to love them back the same way. Uh, Lord, thank you for sending us such gifted and experienced priests and pastors. We're so grateful, Lord. All of the men that we can uh, respect and honor and, and know that have the best in their hearts for us. Help us to listen, Lord, we ask. In Jesus' holy and precious name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.